when I put together a sermon series based on a book of the Bible, it's always an interesting balance trying to decide where to put the breaks in the text for what to preach on what Sunday and all those details. And there's lots of factors involved, including how many Sundays there are in the series, how long the book of the Bible is, what are the significant passages that you really want to focus on, and all sorts of other thoughts. And some sermons are easier to pick out as a text than others. And this week was a little strange. In some ways, it was hard uh, to narrow down to what the text should be, and yet at the same time, easy. As I was trying to decide whether to break up Acts 2, 1 to 41 into two sermons or keep it as one. The hard part is there's so much to talk about. And in some ways, there's a natural break in the text between the events of Pentecost and Peter's sermon. It would, it would have made sense to do two sermons on that note. However, we also want this series done by the end of June, so that puts limits on us in other ways. Uh, in fact, there's going to be some weeks in this sermon series where we're going to cover off three chapters in Acts all at once. In reality, we could have taken one to two years to work through the book of Acts, and we're doing it in six months. Now, the easy part was keeping this text together um, because it fits together. And too often, Peter's sermon is separated from the events of Pentecost, leaving us missing out on some very important parts of the Pentecost story. And I believe the passage we read today, Acts 2, 1-41, to uh, really needs to be seen and read as a whole. So we're keeping it as one sermon, despite how much content there is. And as I look at this passage, I, I almost see four mini-sections in this passage. Um, the first two center around the events of Pentecost and the reaction of those who witnessed it. And then the next two are Peter's preaching, explaining what happened, and again, the response of those present. And these four parts flow together and all fit together really well. So preaching this as one sermon has advantages, um, but it also means there's going to be some parts that we're not going to address fully. Uh, so what I'll be doing again this week on Monday night at 7 p.m., I'm going to do another Monday night live stream, and we'll share some thoughts I have from this passage. And as always, I'm going to answer any questions you ask or respond to any of your reflections. Maybe you want to know my thoughts on speaking in tongues, or you want to know more about what this passage means for us with sharing our faith personally, or something else. Well, just email me at micaparliamentchurch.com or text me at 306 992 26 you can do that anytime during the sermon or afterwards. Uh, you can even leave a comment in the Facebook page and I'll, in, in the Facebook feed, and I'll try and get to that as well. Um, these contact details will show up on the screen once in a while during the sermon as well this morning for you, so you can remember it in case you don't have a pen handy right now. Uh, and then Monday night, the stream will be on the church Facebook page or the church YouTube page. or Well, actually, it'll be on both. So whichever one you want to go to. And I, I hope you'll find that beneficial. I love some of the conversation that came out of last Monday. And so thank you for those who engaged me in conversation on some points. Really, I really value that, that dialogue. Now, when we talk about Pentecost... Our mind often goes to the incredible and clearly miraculous events that took place on Pentecost, as we see in the book of Acts, in the scripture passage that was read to us today. But that's just one part, and arguably not the most important part of this story. So as we reflect on this passage, I want to do three things. First, I want to reflect on the background of Pentecost. Second, I want to look at the act of Pentecost in Acts 2, and then and how the people responded to that. And then following that, look at Peter's sermon again, how the people responded. Uh, 
So let's start with the background of Pentecost. Pentecost is not a New Testament event. I remember growing up in Sunday school, and we didn't cover off Pentecost a lot in the churches I grew up in. Um, but it would come up occasionally. And the few times it was mentioned uh, was in a sermon or a Sunday school class. And I always thought Pentecost is just a New Testament event from the book of Acts. And kind of a strange one to me at that time, but cool. Um, and for some people, that's all they think of when it comes to Pentecost is the gift of the Holy Spirit and people speaking in tongues. But that is missing out on a rich, rich history of what Pentecost is, and also the underlying, underlying meaning of what Pentecost is and what God is doing in our passage today. So Pentecost, first of all, is the Greek name for a Jewish festival called Shavuot, uh, or the Feast of Weeks. It was a major festival for the Jewish people, one of the ones that God called them to have, and it's a festival or feast that celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. But it also came to be a time to celebrate God giving of the law to the people of Israel. They saw it as being at the same season, and so they would celebrate that at Pentecost or uh, the Feast of Weeks as well. Now, it's called Pentecost in Greek because uh, that means 50, and it would come 50 days after Passover. And uh, now in the Christian church, we celebrate Pentecost 50 days after Easter. Pentecost was also a pilgrimage feast where men would come from all over to Jerusalem and take in the feast and celebrations. And this, this pilgrimage was so much easier in the Roman Empire at the time um, when Acts 2 happened. Uh, with the Roman peace, the Roman Pax Romana, as it's called, uh, within the Roman borders, um, there's this incredible sense of peace and security that was existent in the Roman Empire that made tr moving between places a lot safer and easier in many ways along the Roman roads. And part of that, too, is also the Roman highway system. That was just an incredibly efficient and effective highway system. Some people say it has never been matched in history until maybe, maybe our current systems. That's getting off track. We may talk more about the, the importance of those two things in the coming weeks as we look at Paul's missionaries journeys, for instance. So when we get to Acts 2, the Feast of Pentecost is underway, the Feast of Weeks. People had come into Jerusalem from all over. And we're told in Acts 2, verses 9 and 10, there are Parthians and Medes and Elamites. There was residents from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Rome, and Libya. Literally, the point is, there were Jews from all over who had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And we would be talking thousands upon thousands of individuals who would be in town for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. Now, as we mentioned before, Pentecost is about the first fruits of the harvest. Very much a festival of thanksgiving for what God has done and his provision, but also what people anticipated God would continue to do. Pentecost is about anticipation of what is still to come and when the full and final harvest is complete. It's thanking God for what he's doing and will do. So when we see the giving of the law being celebrated at Pentecost, it is a festival of first fruits even for that. Celebrating the gift of the law, and that being the first fruit of that relationship of, of uh, 
the people of God coming out of Egypt. They were given the law, and that being the first fruit of that relationship, but also anticipation of what was to come, the building up of that relationship of what had come. And uh, we would use the term harvest, and in that sense, too, maybe a harvest of what would come out of that relationship. That is the context and meaning in which the Pentecost in Acts 2 happens. And we cannot afford to see the events in Acts 2 separate from that meaning. They're tied together. God is very intentional in sending the Holy Spirit at this time and in this place. So, with that background, the sense of first fruits and anticipating the greater harvest, we come to Acts 2. We are told that they were all together in one place. Now, by they... Uh, we believe that probably means the 120 believers uh, we read about in Acts chapter 1. We talked about them uh, the other week. And they've gathered together, and they hear this incredible sound and see this incredible sight. They hear a sound like a violent wind coming from heaven, and they see tongues of fire descending on each of them. The sound of wind is coming from heaven. The fire descends from heaven as well. The direction and the substance of these two things is so important to us. You see, both wind and fire scripturally are images associated with the divine presence, God's presence. We read in Job 38 that God speaks to Job out of the storm wind. Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham as a blazing torch. And Exodus 13, God is a pillar of cloud and fire. The wind and fire makes it clear that what is happening involves the divine presence. This is not something of nature. This is something divine. And that the wind and fire are descending down from heaven connects this experience with Jesus who had ascended to heaven. Something unique and amazing is happening. And it's coming from God the Father and Jesus the Christ very much a Trinitarian image of the Holy Spirit coming, involving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't stop with the imagery. We read in verse 4, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is phenomenal. It's amazing. And unfortunately, I think we can stop here sometimes at these events and see this just as being Pentecost. This is what Pentecost was, speaking in tongues. Now, if we focus just on the sound of the wind and tongues of fire, if we just focus on speaking in tongues in the Pentecost story, we end up focusing on the sensational at the cost of the transformational. Think about that for a second. If we focus only on these miraculous elements, then we're only focusing on the sensational at the cost of the transformational. And our God is a God of transformation. Even look at Jesus in his ministry. He did some sensational miracles, but they always sought to transform lives. So what is the transformation that we're looking for? Well, that's why we need to continue to wrestle with the rest of this passage we talked about earlier to see the transformation that happens and not just stop after we see the speaking in tongues. We need to continue in this passage to see what the real first fruits of this Pentecost experience are, to see the place of these miraculous experiences within the larger story. 
So we move from these miraculous events to the response of the crowd. When they heard the sound of these Jews speaking in other languages, in their languages, many of them were just bewildered. They could not understand how they were hearing their own language being spoken by these people. And this is where the pilgrimage comes into play. Now, most Jews in that culture would have been multilingual, speaking their local dialect and Greek and maybe or Hebrew and maybe Greek. Greek was a common language throughout the Roman Empire. Their local dialect would have been their main one. And then, of course, Hebrew, which is where the scriptures would have been written, or in the Greek, where there's a Greek translation called the Septuagint. But the local dialects were just that. People would not know that for regions they were not from. Very few people would know multiple local dialects, maybe some traders or merchants, but not many others. Now, this crowd that is there is large. We're going to see later on, there were over 3,000 people in the crowd. And these people heard their own languages being spoken. This was not natural. This was miraculous. And they were bewildered. How is this possible? And they're not sure what to make of this experience, this miraculous experience. Some decide instead of saying, what is this? What does this mean? They decide to ridicule and mock those speaking, saying, oh, they're drunk. <laughs> so two groups, one saying, what does this mean? And the other group saying, they must be drunk. There was no explanation for this miracle in their everyday experience. It didn't make any sense. So some people are going to doubt. And they're just going to be cynical and write it off. And others are going to question, saying, what does it mean? So yeah, some people are going to question why these, I mean, literally, I mean, you're going to have all those different responses. You've got people speaking other languages fluently that they should never have known. And maybe those who were doubting, who were asking about the junk, were the locals who didn't know even what those languages being spoken were. We don't know. But we do know there's a lot of people saying, what does this mean? Wondering. Wondering what else is behind this. And in the speaking of the tongues, they may not be fully aware of what. But they're aware something phenomenal has happened. And Peter's going to explain it shortly to those willing to listen. But I want us to be clear about something here. Miracles themselves did not lead people to faith. I'd say miracles themselves do not lead people to faith. What miracles do is they raise questions. And those questions allow faith to take root. You see, understanding needs to take place of what is experienced and to give context to understand it. And in this story, we see the meeting of the experiential with what happened at Pentecost and understanding with Peter's sermon. We need the Word of God to give context. We need the Word of God explained into our lives. And that's what we see in the next part of the story. Peter's explaining what just happened. Now, this is why I wrestled with not breaking up the text into two sermons. Now, I explained the argument for keeping together is you really shouldn't come to understand Pentecost event without Peter's teaching. Just like we said, miracles themselves don't bring understanding. But 
I got to tell you, this is a phenomenal message from Peter that is so rich theologically that you could easily preach a sermon or multiple sermons on this sermon alone from Peter. There's so much wonderful reflection and meaning there that we could wrestle with and grasp onto ourselves, just like we see them doing it there. But as we said, we want to keep the Pentecost story together to see the whole picture. And again, keeping in mind that Pentecost is about first fruits, right? And we haven't seen the first fruits yet. Uh, we've seen the miracles of the events, the miracle of the Holy Spirit coming, but that's not quite the first fruits yet. Those are still to come in the story. So the people are asking, what does it mean? Maybe another way to word is, what is going on? This is crazy. So Peter steps up to explain. But I want to tell you, I don't think it's just Peter talking here. You see the Holy Spirit's come, right? And I believe the Holy Spirit is empowering Peter in his words, as the Holy Spirit does. Now, first Peter, th the first thing that Peter does is he corrects the silly notion they're drunk. He's like, come on, folks. Get serious. We're not drunk. And then he moves on. You notice he doesn't waste a lot of time on the naysayers. He's addressing those who are asking the questions, what does this mean? And he builds his sermon around three Old Testament passages. Peter explains what has happened at this Pentecost in the larger picture of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah and God's working in the world. And this would be a message that though that, that crowd would understand. These are Jewish people. They're people who know the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, the promise of a Messiah who would come. And Peter's telling them, Jesus is that Messiah. Here's how God's working in the world, and here's what it means for you. And he starts by quoting the prophet Joel. And Peter acknowledges, hey, all of you know about Jesus and what he did. And he tells them that you're implicit in his death. Jesus is the one who accomplished the signs and wonders that Joel mentions. Peter tells him that. He states clearly that the persecution that Jesus suffered was part of God's larger, larger plan. That's we read Peter saying, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked, wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see how he implied, how he says, hey, you were a part of this. Just like we are with our sins. That we are part of the, the people that nailed him to the cross by our own sinfulness and brokenness. He continues in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He then switches to Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. And he shares that and continues to show us that Jesus was part of God's plan. But also that Jesus is different than the David-type person everyone expected the Messiah to be. Peter makes it clear it is God who did all the work through Jesus. God has exalted Jesus. And we read Peter saying in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father a promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. He's letting him know 
What you just witnessed was God sending his spirit through Jesus to us. Continues, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This would be mind-altering, earth-shattering to these people to consider that Jesus, who was crucified, is actually the Messiah, and not a Messiah like they expected. Peter then uses Psalm 110, verse 1, which was a favorite of early Christians to express the royal status of Jesus, making it clear that Messiahship can't be about David because David didn't ascend to heaven, but that the Messiah is all about Jesus that the Messiah is Jesus. Peter is preaching the gospel to this people. He's preaching the good news. He's preaching that we're all sinful, that Jesus came and died for our sins as a part of God's plan, that God raised him from the dead, and Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah Scripture speaks about. And Jesus has ascended to heaven and sent his spirit. The people are listening. And they ask a question. Their earlier question is, what does this mean? Now they're asking, well, what should we do? And Peter replies in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter's driving the point home. And we are told 3,000 people came to faith that day. They had questions after seeing a miracle of people speaking in tongues. And after hearing the message of Peter, after they gain understanding, 3,000 come to faith. Now, we don't know how many were naysayers and didn't come to faith. We just know 3,000 did come to faith. The Holy Spirit has come. And the Holy Spirit's already at work through the followers of Jesus, and now throughout the crowd, working in the hearts of people, and as a result, 3,000 come to faith. Think about that. This group of 120 followers of Christ that we started out chapter 2 with, the Holy Spirit comes and works through them, and in one day, one day, less than a day, really, 3,000 people were added to their number. That is the real miracle of Pentecost. That's the transformation we're looking for. These new believers are just the first fruits of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit active in the world. This is the transformation we've waited to see. The spectacular was wonderful, but only when it leads to the transformation God desires. Lives transformed for Jesus. And if we just hold on to the spectacular, we risk missing the incredible transformations that happen. And we see them here. And again, we need to be clear, this is just the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost reminds us of, remember? We're celebrating the first fruits of the harvest, which means there's still a greater harvest to come. There's still more to come. 
The Holy Spirit leads us into personal relationship with the King of Heaven. The filling of the Spirit in our lives points us to Jesus and declares His Lordship and His royalty. And in this Pentecost, we see along with the miracle of lives transformed, the transformation of a community as people come together from all over the, all over the, the region and encounter the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and have their lives transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and rooted in the deep love of God. And we see this community created through this Pentecost event, bringing together people of different languages into one community of believers, breaking down barriers. And in Pentecost, yes, people were speaking in tongues at Pentecost, but it was never just about that. Actually, it wasn't ever about people and what they were doing. Pentecost is all about God and what God was, is, and will be doing. So we see the miraculous occur, but we also see the fruits and the transformation. And we recognize it's just the start. And we need to keep in mind that these people were from all over. They'd come into Jerusalem for this, and now they have had their lives transformed by the Holy Spirit, by the message of Jesus Christ. They've accepted it. They've come to faith and to believe in Jesus. And now they're going to head back out into the world. They're going to head back home, transformed by the gospel message, gifted with the Holy Spirit, and in that, equipped to do the work God is calling them to, proclaiming Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended. There is much more fruit still to come, and we're going to see that in the book of Acts. But it's not limited to Acts. There's still more fruit to come in our lives. Are we willing to do that work? The work that God is calling us to? Are we willing to let the Holy Spirit work in through us? 120 people and 3,000 came to faith. What is God wanting to do through us? Are we willing to share the good news of Jesus so people know the truth? Are we willing to let the Spirit work in us in wonderful ways? You know, we're called to love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. Did you know that that, when we do that, that is one of the most powerful witnesses in the world? It's incredible. And often people will ask, why, why are you doing this? It's not that different than the question they asked about speaking in tongues. What does it mean? There's a reason God gave us that commandment, to love God with all that we are and love our neighbors ourselves. And God's given us the good news of Jesus. We have the Gospels in Scripture, the, the, the teachings of Jesus, the, the, the accounting of his life, his death, his resurrection, so we can share that with others. Are we willing to share the good news of Jesus so people know the truth? Are we willing to do the works God has called us to? Do we want to see an incredible harvest? Do we believe God could use us to bring about an incredible harvest? Do you believe God could use you to help bring about an incredible harvest? 
that's really the question of Pentecost that we have to take away in some senses. We've seen the first fruits of the harvest. Now will we be a part of the workers and help with the rest of the harvest? For God is at work in incredible ways and wants us to be a part of it. We are a part of the body of Christ. The first fruits are evident. And there's still more work to be done. And I hope we'll do that together. Loving God with all that we are, loving our neighbors ourselves, letting that be a witness to the world around us in tangible, real ways. And then helping people understand why we do that. Sharing the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and the impact it's made on our lives, the impact on the world, and to share God's love through Jesus and the presence of the Spirit in this world. God worked in and through us to bring about a bigger harvest to bring more people to Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit that we see at Pentecost. And we thank you for the first fruits we see. We see thousands come to faith. Jesus, embolden us by your Spirit to share God's love with the world around us. To be a people who want to bring your love tangibly into this world. A love that is so radical and different than the selfish ways of our world. A love that's self-sacrificing. That's self-sacrificial. A love that puts the other first. A love that shares your value for them with others. Help us to be your hands and feet in this world, but also to be your voice sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Embolden us, open our eyes to the possibilities and opportunities, and help us be attentive to your spirit, nudging us and pulling us forward and moving us forward. And to you be all glory and honor and praise. And Lord, we thank you that we are a part of the harvest, but that we're also workers in the field and that you've called us to that. And may the, may the final harvest just be overwhelming. In your name we pray. Amen.